Good evening, listeners. It's September 25th, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Steve Friedman. And I'm DJ Lily Inferno. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs and study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Janessa Duncombe from CEOS. Welcome, Janessa. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. Um, could you tell us, just to kick things off, what is it that you work on here at Oregon State and who do you work on it with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am a master's student in physical oceanography in the College of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Science. Um, and CEOS, really, that's what CEOS is. Yeah, CEOS. sorry, that's my yes. fault, listeners. That's the <laughs> abbreviation. Um, yeah, and so I work on um, surface ocean circulation. So backing up a step, um, physical oceanography is the study of how water moves in the ocean, how the waves move, how the currents turn around the earth. And um, what I look at in particularly in this field is um, the surface of the ocean and the kind of movements and circulations that occur there. Um, and what I look at in particular is how these circulations um, could be changed by different kinds of physical uh, forces like wind um, or heating from the sun. Um, and these kinds of questions become important when we want to study something like climate. Um, the oceans are linked to the climate in very intricate ways. And so although I am studying the ocean, the kind of big picture thing that we're interested in with this research is uh, how the ocean can impact the climate. So uh, the first thing that pops into my head, at least, is is you say the the surface of the ocean. Yeah. So I, the top five inches, the top <laughs> ten feet. The, right. What is the surface of the ocean? It's it is a huge ocean. Yeah. Um. And the the average depth of the ocean is about four kilometers deep. So what is the surface? Um. It's really in terms of my research, the top three hundred feet. So although that seems like a lot of water, um, really it's just the skin on top of that deep ocean. And what type of effects do you look at in this top 300 feet of the ocean? What sort of movement are you looking at? Yeah, so I'm looking at um, kind of small scale movements like within a kilometer, say. Um, and I'm looking at circulations that would bring water from um, the deeper reaches of the ocean, you know, 300 feet, um, and then up towards the surface. And um, that's important because when we bring water to the surface or take it from the surface down deeper, um, it offers this pathway for exchange between the ocean and the atmosphere. 
Okay. So that's, that's, I mean, right there, that's a huge thing, right? Cause that's, I mean, everyone these days is talking about climate change, right? Right. So you have this in exchange and there's this huge talk about like ocean acidification and how the mm -hmm. ocean plays into that. So could you speak a little bit about how all these movements you're studying then affect the air exchange and that affects the atmosphere? Is that, that's a fair way to say it? Yes. Yeah. I mean, essentially the water creates this pathway or highway for, um, properties and compounds like heat and carbon and oxygen. Um, all of these things are really important for climate. And um, that's kind of the cool thing about physical oceanography is that you're studying the environment. You're studying the water and, and where it moves and what goes with that water. Who knows? You know, you can apply it to so many different fields. And one of those would be um, climate science. So I'm curious, how are you able to study these um, these trends in the uh, upper 300 feet of the ocean. What methods do you use to study this? Yeah, um, there's really three different options, um, and that would be going out in the field, taking data, um, modeling using large numerical models, or studying a more theoretical approach using um, equations and applied math. And I do the last um of these, I use theoretical methods, um, basically solving series of differential equations um, using numerical methods and uh, finding predictions and behavior of the water movement. And uh, the particular thing that I use is called linear stability analysis. Is, you know, I, my guess is you probably totally, I mean, you totally confuse me. So I'm assuming you totally confused <laughs> okay. most of the, well, Sorry. they're probably smarter than I am. Um, <laughs> how are you? using math to, to are you are you trying to predict what the water is doing and how mm -hmm. it's mixing or are you trying to say we know from visual evidence that the water mixes a certain way right we've seen like the swirly videos mm -hmm. from nasa uh, and are you trying to model that knowing it does that with a math with a um differential equation right i i see how that could be confusing um and i think um so what we're doing is we're really predicting the model's movement with equations. And these equations are sometimes used in models to model the movement that you're talking about, those swirls you would see. Um, and so really, if you think about it, if we can improve those equations, we can improve those models. And that's using um, mathematical analysis to get those equations really pinned down. And that'll give a better idea of how these trends are affecting like being affected by climate change. Yeah, okay. it could it could show us how um, how fast water is rising and sinking in the surface of the ocean. Um, for my study, I look at particular regions where sinking rates are um, relatively fast compared to the rest of the ocean, um, about ten to a hundred times faster. So I'm looking at you know particular regions um, where this occurs. Um, so. You know, as I think we could probably talk about this forever, but you, you, I mean, you, you study a very interesting phenomena in a very, what I would think is an unusual way and probably a hard way for a lot of people to wrap their heads around. Um, so you're taking math and you're taking this phys physical oceanography and, and, you know, a little bit of climate change stuff and you're mm -hmm. melding all those things together. Mm -hmm. So you had to pull from a lot of different places to get to where you are. Mm -hmm. So when you go back and think about how you just started out getting into science, being interested oh, in these fields, yeah, where did it start for you? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. take a minute and you know, I know. think back. <laughs> um, 
I think the earliest time would have been uh, my middle school science teacher. She had us do these amazing hands-on labs about earth science, in particular earth science, um, looking at the clouds and how they move, looking at the sun. Um, I just thought it was fascinating. Cool. So how did you um, decide to continue this into your uh, college studies? Like what brought about that, um, that desire, that passion, drive? Yeah, you know, it wasn't really my plan. <laughs> um, I, I went to college thinking, oh, I'm going to be like an environmental lawyer or something. Like I'm going to be like Aaron Brockovich, like, <laughs> just take, take down the corporations. Um, but I took a couple science classes and they were just so much fun. They were, they were so fun. And I thought it was a really fascinating way to look at the world. Um, and also it seemed to me like all the kids who really loved hiking were in the earth science major. So that, that had a little bit of effect too. So uh, did you, I mean, did you go to college then and were you undecided or were you, I don't I don't know what lawyers major in um, history <laughs> right. or, or journalism or something like that. And then you switched. Uh -huh. Yeah. After about a year I yeah. switched okay. um, to do science. So what did you, what was your initial major? Um, it was the college of social studies okay. uh, at my, yeah. Right. School, so. You did history, and then you yep. science is is cooler. Not a, no offense to the history of students course out there. Not. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so you switched into earth sciences because mm -hmm. um, all the hiking students were doing that. So, right. how did you make then a transition from just studying it in a classroom to then actually being an active participant in the research? Right. Um, yeah, I think it started with uh, a couple classes. I was taking earth science classes and one of those was an ocean and atmosphere class. And that was just the coolest thing. Um, up until that point, I'd been studying rocks and rocks are cool and how they move is cool, but they're pretty slow in my opinion. And just the, the ocean just moves in such a quick fascinating way. And so I had that class and then I had a physics class called waves and oscillations. And, um, I remember reading this kind of dry physics textbook and on the introduction of, I don't know, chapter three or something was like waves in the ocean can be modeled using these equations. And I was like, Oh my gosh, that is so cool. <laughs> that's so cool. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of what sparked going into physical oceanography. All right. So you're going to undergrad. Where were you for oh, your undergrad? Yeah, I was at Wesleyan University. Okay. All right. So you're in Wesleyan in Connecticut. Yes, right? in Connecticut. Okay. And so what were your plans after you finished your undergraduate studies? Yeah. Um, so before I left, I did something that I thought was um, pretty impactful. I did a research experience for undergraduates. It's an NSF program. Any undergrad can apply for them, and I, I really, really recommend it. Um, they essentially line you up with the university anywhere, you know, across the, uh, the U.S., and um, set you up for a summer research experience with them. So after my junior year in college, I went to the University of Maryland and uh, studied physical oceanography there with um, Bill Boycourt. And it was just so much fun. I was on the Chesapeake Bay. Um, you really... get to be a terp, too, for a little while. <laughs> yeah, I did. To, yeah, yeah. Everyone fears the turtle. <laughs> Sorry, that's my alma mater for those that don't know. <laughs> so you were on the Chesapeake Bay, and you're, you're mm -hmm. doing this research. Yeah, and I think that's what uh, made me decide grad school. I 
had not even considered it. Even going into my REU, I was like, I'm not going to go to grad school. And then I met graduate students. I was in this cool program. Um, so yeah, that, that set me up that I wanted to go uh, to grad school. Um, but following when I graduated from Wesleyan, um, I took a little detour and I worked on wave-powered renewable energy at a national lab called Sandia National Laboratories. Um, so my role was to help um, basically bolster um, the wave industry um, by helping companies that are trying to get started um, have a little more information about where they should test their devices. So just just take a step back. During mm-hmm. your research uh, there at REU on the Chesapeake yeah. Bay, what, what was your day-to-day work kind of like? What was the project actually mm-hmm. studying? Yeah, it was different than I'm studying now. It was uh, looking at how wind impacts um, hypoxia. Those are dead zones in the Chesapeake Bay. So the Chesapeake Bay has um, a fair amount of runoff pollution. And uh, unfortunately, that can cause the waters to lose pretty much all of its oxygen can cause massive fish kills and just a lot of environmental problems. Um, And so these uh, dead zone events, they're called, can be impacted by the wind and the circulation. So I was uh, using data from Bill Boycourt and exploring that. So the REU allowed you to get acquainted with just the ins and outs of real world research basically okay yeah it was my first time first time really doing physical oceanography and that was a chance to kind of do these like mathematical models mathematical modeling of how the water is moving was that is that kind of what you were doing mine so when i was there i was doing um field like data analysis okay i wasn't into the modeling part but i kind of got a taste from watching other scientists in the lab and thought Hmm, that stuff looks pretty cool. Okay. Um, so, and then you, you mentioned you went to um, uh, Sandina National Lab or Sandia National Lab. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, I guess to me, the big question that like I can't get over because <laughs> I, I don't think about math enough probably <laughs> is how you, you, you spent this time studying earth sciences and then you mm-hmm. started getting into like movement of water and taking samples at the Chesapeake Bay mm-hmm. and then really more and obviously wave uh, energy generators are going to have to deal with a lot of water movement. Mm-hmm. When did you start to bring in or think, you know, I want to actually apply these math models? I guess you mentioned it was described in a textbook once. Yeah. Did you, when did you start actually getting to, to do that yourself? Right. Um, I did actually have a class in my undergrad that was called mathematically, mathematical modeling of earth systems. And I just thought, wow, this is so cool. I mean, you know, we can basically in a model, you're like, um, the almighty creator and you're building this box and you get to decide exactly what goes into it. And it creates this really interesting opportunity where you get to look at just how, you know, that, that one thing affects that one other thing. And let me take this part out and add this part in. And it just, it's fascinating to me. Yeah. And in those modeling systems, were you using differential equations? Is that where you first, um, was a, you were applying mm-hmm. that technique? Yes, it okay. was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, 
Cool. So for those that are just tuning in or maybe missed the very beginning of this, uh, you're listening to Inspiration Dissemination, and we have Janessa Duncombe from the College of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences on today. And Janessa, could you remind the listeners what it is that you're working on? And, <laughs> and you know, kind of just, you know, if they, if they ran into you at a bar and they asked what you <laughs> did, you know, what do you do? <laughs> right, yeah. Um, so I study um, physical oceanography and um, what I'm interested in is how the top 300 feet of the ocean moves and circulates and how that water movement can create a pathway for uh, compounds like heat, um, properties like heat, compounds like carbon and oxygen, and how those pathways would affect um, the air-sea exchange and potentially climate. So you're in your third year? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. And whose labs are you working in specifically? Oh, my gosh. I can't believe I haven't mentioned them. Um, my wonderful advisors, Eric Skillingstad and Roger Samuelson. Um, so that, I guess, brings us, you know, we, we went through your story of, uh, you know, an awesome teacher in high school or middle school. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was where exactly? Oh, it was Ashbrook Independent School, which is actually in Corvallis. In Corvallis. From Corvallis, yeah. Mrs. Rabarchek, yeah. you're listening. You're awesome. Any high school students or middle school students <laughs> listening, you, that's a great, if you want to really learn, <laughs> Mrs. Barchek? Rabarchek. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so you're from Corvallis yes. originally. Okay, and so you ended up in Connecticut for your undergrad mm-hmm. at Wesleyan, Um How did you get there and then actually end up coming back here? (laughs) Yeah, um, so it was rather serendipitous, actually. Um, I left, I graduated college having not applied to grad school, thinking I'm not quite sure if I want to go or not. Um, But over the summer, I went to Sandia National Labs, and I really, I looked around me at the, the people that were working there and realized, wow, all these people have masters or PhDs, and I want to be doing the stuff that they're doing. Um, so I, it just became totally clear to me that the next step is, is grad school. Um, and so, yeah, I actually came back after my job um, towards the end of the summer and got in contact with some uh, professors here at OSU, ended up auditing a class, and um, during that time met who would become my future advisor. Um, really struck up a conversation, found out that he was doing really interesting work, and um, by just the luck of the draw, they had just gotten a, a grant over the summer and they were looking for a student. So after talking and um, uh, going through the application process, I ended up starting that fall. It was quite a quick turnaround. That's a whirlwind. It was yeah. a whirlwind. <laughs> yeah. I think that actually brings up a point that's, you know, this show is about mm-hmm. the story of, of students going to grad school and what that's like in our experiences. And that brings up a good point of if you're interested in grad school and you're mm-hmm. interested in a, a professor's research, get in touch with them. Oh, my right? gosh, Come, yes. go, go, just go to the place that they are and oh, start yeah. talking to them about it or email or call. Yes. Right? They're mm-hmm. so friendly. Like, oh, man, I was so nervous to send that first email to um, a professor here at OSU saying, can I audit your class? And, you know, I'm interested in grad school. May I audit your class? And he says, why do you want to audit? Why don't you just apply to grad school and take it in grad school? You know, I I think I was held back because I felt like I needed so many more credentials. But actually, if you're excited about the the subject, professors seem pretty, pretty excited back. 
I think that also, you know, you brought up another point that I, I think is interesting. You mentioned at Sandia, there were a lot of masters and PhDs doing mm-hmm. the work you wanted to do. And you're pursuing a master's now. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you decide that the master's was the right thing instead of a PhD? Did you weigh that very heavily at all? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, very heavily. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I came in as a master's student and gave myself the room and time to say, you know, I could convert this to a PhD later on, either at OSU or at another university. Um, And I'm really glad that I did that because um, I think that there are different uh, sort of paths and trajectories for master's and a PhD um, degree. And so I needed to figure out what my goals were and I decided to stay with the master's. Cool. Yeah. So you cite the NSF GFRP mm-hmm. is um, a great thing for grad students to apply to. Yes. And you were actually a recipient of that fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that eased your life <laughs> and how it's been advantageous for you? Right. Yeah. So the, the National Science Foundation has a fellowship specifically for graduate students called the Graduate Research Fellowship Program, GRFP. And um, this uh, fellowship provides funding and tuition for three years of a graduate degree, master's or Ph.D. And um, uh, people who are just about to graduate from undergrad and first year graduate students are uh, eligible to apply to this. And I I really encourage people to do that. Um, I ended up applying my first year in grad school and was awarded the fellowship. And it's. Uh, it offers a, a great stability to being a grad student, knowing where my funding is coming from. And it also has a network um, and a lot of support coming from the NSF. Awesome. Um, so we, you know, we kind of took a detour here and talked <laughs> a little bit about your, your path and um, how you ended up back here now. And I'm now actually curious a lot about, you know, you mentioned that there's this mixing yeah. Um, and that affects interchange with the ocean and, and the air all the time. Right. And what we, I guess, to me, what I'm curious is there when I, when I've seen those satellite images NASA has, you see this like X Y plane swirling going on, which mm-hmm. is tied into the big current systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're talking about uh, an, a vertical. A y-axis exchange is that correct yes i am could you speak a little bit about i know this might be stretching exactly what you do but mm-hmm. could you speak about how chaotic it is right oh. in that first 300 feet that you know there's a vertical mixing there's this uh-huh. horizontal mixing oh my gosh yes <laughs> it is just a turbulent turbulent place um there's uh really depending on the situation, depending on the wind, depending on the sun, depending on if there's a strong surface current coming through or a river plume, um, the dynamics in the surface of the ocean are incredibly complex and exciting. So I guess to be more specific, because I yeah. left that very wide open, uh-huh. um, you see these like, uh, do the do the vertical eddies mm-hmm. exist right next to these strong currents? Do mm. they exist kind of right in the middle, like in the eye of a, a hurricane type thing? Are right. they totally independent systems? Um, yeah, it depends. Um, so in the model, the, the theoretical kind of model that I work with, um, uh, one situation is that on the edge of a very strong surface current um, and strong wind, we can kick up these eddies, these vertical overturning cell eddies in the ocean that are about, um, about, I would say 200 feet deep and about a kilometer long, um, just 
overturning and they can they can stick around um, for a couple of days. They can be wiped out by a storm. Um, but these uh, these eddies that can form in the ocean really encourage a lot of exchange. That's what I'm talking about with these 10 to 100 times the sinking rate of other places in the ocean. And um, actually, people have called these sort of areas the lungs of the ocean. That's what takes in you know, a deep breath of oxygen and carbon and heat and may, maybe stores it into the deep ocean. And where are these eddies mm-hmm. um, located geographically in terms of are they near uh, land formations or are mm-hmm. they out in the open mm-hmm. ocean? Yeah, so they can be, um, they're definitely seen along strong surface currents like the Gulf Stream. Um, I think on the, the blog for this uh radio show, um, there's a picture of the Gulf Stream um, and other strong surface currents that you get. Uh, There's one called the Kuroshio Current off of Japan. Um, Another place you can get it is, say, at the mouth of the Columbia River. It's an Oregon example. You get uh, different types of water, fresh and salty water meeting, and um, that creates a front, and uh, you can get some really cool eddies there. Um, Just I think it is linked on the blog, but the video is called Perpetual Ocean. Oh, my gosh. So if someone wants to see a very cool video, Perpetual Ocean. Yeah, it's this uh, video that NASA made of uh, the currents on the ocean um, across the globe, and it just sort of takes you on this tour, and uh, it's, it's beautiful. Um, so you mentioned the the lungs of the ocean, um, and we've talked a little bit about climate change and how this might affect those models. Um, what is you know? So as you get through grad school, mm-hmm. you're hoping to improve the math that <laughs> that defines this mixing. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the bigger uh, outcome of of your work then, as far as the models go in the lungs of the ocean? Right. Yeah. So with current um, global climate models, um, they really do a fantastic job um, of modeling climate. So I want to say that right off the bat, because anytime we're trying to improve these models, it's not because they're not working. They work great. But any, you know, any more that we can improve them is is always a good thing. Um, So what we're trying to do in particular is a global model is covering a, a vast area. And these circulations I've been talking about are quite small when you think of the globe, right? And so the grid spacing that you'll have in a model is just too big to resolve these um, circulations. So you basically have to flatten them into one parameter. Um, And so what my research would be helping to do is improve what we assign that parameter, what that number is going to be that's going to account for mixing on a global scale. So a refinement of the current model, mm. basically. Absolutely, okay, yeah. That's already in place. Yeah. Uh, is, there a, is there a point, hopefully, in the <laughs> near future where the model, instead of just saying it's one parameter for all oxygen exchange across the ocean, uh-huh. and since these are local events, we can right. say in this box it's going to be, you know, 100 times higher exchange, and mm-hmm. then in this box it will be lower. Right. Is that, is that something that's coming, you think? I think it could. As okay. as computing power improves and grid spacing will get smaller, we can do that kind of localized. One thing that is hard though is that these features will pop out, pop up depending on, mm-hmm. you know, what's going on that day, that season, so it's hard to pin down. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. So, curious, what would be your advice mm-hmm. to yourself? 
couple of years ago as mm-hmm. you're entering grad school or any incoming high schoolers that are thinking about grad school, what mm-hmm. would you recommend to them? Yeah, um, I would really, I would recommend uh, to put yourself out there. Um, I can definitely be shy sometimes and it's intimidating to talk to these professors, um, but I would say uh, just go for it and um yeah, I, I think no harm can come from talking to people. So I would say try to talk to as many people as possible. Yeah. Um, and something else that that came up when we when we met initially is that um, being a woman in science could be tough. And you're mm-hmm. especially you're in a lot of physics courses and earth sciences, and these were heavily mm-hmm. male. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. Do you have any advice for women, or maybe for also for men <laughs> yeah. that are in science, and and how we can improve that situation? Right. Um, yeah, I think my experience um, as a woman in science has been um, pretty great sometimes, but it's also been sometimes a little bit lonely. Um, in my undergraduate physics classes, I would be in a lecture hall of 40 people and there would be two other women in the room. And um, that just doesn't seem really um, right to me. Um, but I would say my advice is uh, don't despair. Um Find good people to work with um, and try to work in teams and bring each other, you know, each other up. I think that's what men and women need in science. So basically a good support system. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's what's helped me. Absolutely. Um, So one other tradition that we have on the show is that our guests get to, well, yeah, our guests get to to pick a song. But... Mm -hmm. um, and ideally, this song is something that either means a lot to you or is somehow related to your work or is something you play to get through things. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that, uh, you've picked a song. Can yes. you tell us why? And what <laughs> oh, it- gosh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I picked a Taylor Swift song. Um, I picked Shake It Off. And uh, this song means a lot to me because it came out the summer before I started grad school. And... I was pretty nervous, um, and uh, I uh, I really needed a pump-up song uh, before tests, before a lecture, um, and this song just kind of got me through. I would bring it up on my phone and dance around in the bathroom and just, you know, like, forget about things and take things a little less seriously. So, yeah. Yeah, we all need that in grad school, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. My first thought is I hope the, the professor for the tests didn't, like, walk in as you're dancing in the back. <laughs> That's just what the image is. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, thank you very much for coming on, Janessa. Yeah, thank you. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for having me, guys. And T-Swift.